I'm turning this evening to the book of Job. Job chapter 21 and verse 14. Job 21 verse 14. Therefore they say unto God, Depart from us, for we desire not the knowledge of thy ways. And our subject is, Why resist Almighty God? What words these are. The book of Job, if you're not familiar with it, is just in front of the book of Psalms. Go to the center of the Bible and back one book and you're there. Job 21, verse 14. This is an analysis of the attitude of the human race to God, written, well, this is probably the oldest book in the Bible, between 2400 and 2000 BC. Job was a great landowner. He lived in a place which is called in the Bible the land of Az. Best guess is that it was probably in the area which you would now call Southern Jordan. Well, he owned a vast amount of land, had an immense herd of flocks of sheep, and uh, he had 3,000 camels. Whatever would you want with 3,000 camels, unless you were also some kind of a haulage contractor. He was a magistrate for his local township, he was a benefactor, a philanthropist, and vast numbers of people evidently had benefited from his philanthropy. He was a man of letters, a poet. We know that from the book of Job. And uh, he was a philosopher, a remarkable man from the ancient world. He was also a believer in the one true and living God. And he's distinguished by this, that he had one particular doctrinal belief that overshadowed them all, and it was this. He believed in the principle of grace. That is, very simply, that the favor of God, God's acceptance of any man or woman, must be entirely free. It cannot be deserved. It cannot be earned. You cannot work to procure it. There is nothing you can do because God is so perfect and holy and we are fallen and sinful and deeply in debt to him because of our countless offences through life. We fall so far short of his standards and of his holy ways. And the only way to know him is by grace, by God freely reaching out and bestowing on men and women the gift, the free gift of pardon and forgiveness and new life, eternal life, so that they may live spiritually and walk with him and know him and prove him and one day go to him. That salvation must be purchased by somebody, 
It cannot be purchased by man or woman. It was purchased in that great historic event when Christ came and went to Calvary's cross and suffered and died there. And God the Father put upon Christ, who was the eternal Son of God, second person of the triune Godhead, put upon him all the guilt of every man and woman who would ever be forgiven and converted and saved. And he took the punishment on their behalf so that God, who is absolutely just and committed to punishing sin, could both be judge and meet justice and yet loving and forgiving and pardoning at the same time. And Job believed in grace. Now he had three friends who were also poets. They all participate in a great discussion, argument in this book. And you can see their talents and their abilities. They were tremendous men of letters. And the three friends had quite a different view. And Job irritated his three friends. You could see it comes out because something had happened to Job. Job had been stricken. He'd lost his riches and they were vast. He'd lost his family, his ten married sons. He'd lost them and he'd lost his health. Well, I'm sure you know that. And he was in pain and agony and great distress. And the three friends came, supposedly, from afar, to comfort him. It would seem they were used to meeting. They met up at intervals, I would imagine, and they discussed all kinds of things, philosophy, poetry. But now, the friends seem to be against Job. His teaching and his insistence that you had to come to God with nothing in your hand and receive his grace and his acceptance and his forgiveness and his kindness freely. This irritated them. They were proud men. No, no, we earned the favor of God. We deserve it, they would say. And they would insist on this by virtue of our study of the subject and our knowledge and our conduct and our lives. No, you can't do that, Job would say. We're sinful. We commit sin. Of course we do, the three proud friends would reply. But God doesn't expect you to be perfect. As long as you try pretty well, he's very pleased with you. And that's what we do. And look, Look at the proof of it. We are still prosperous. And you've lost your health and your family and your happiness in their eyes and everything. So it proves you are rejected by God and you've been wrong and we've been right. Well, that's a great oversimplification of the argument and of the case. But I have to express it in a few sentences. And Job, in this book, they put their accusation to him. You're a hypocrite, Job. This is why all this has happened to you. He tries to defend himself. 
You might think that because Job had lost so much, he would lose his faith in God and his trust in God. And while he is filled with quite a lot of bitterness that this should have happened to him, yet never does he lose his belief and his trust in God. And the whole trial of Job, in the end, proves his faith that God was real to him. He held on. He never let go. And he was blessed in the end. Well, that's just a rather long introduction. Just look here, it's an example of some of the things that he tells us. Therefore they say unto God, this is the unbeliever, depart from us, for we desire not the knowledge of thy ways. And here it is, mankind sends a message to God. And that's what this verse is about. Mankind's message to God. Now, of course, you don't necessarily literally say this, though some people do. But by our actions and by our indifference to God and by our ignoring of him and insulting of him, we effectively send him a message. And the message reads, depart from us, leave us alone, go away, don't interfere with us, don't trouble us. And that's the message of our lives to God. Leave us alone. One day when we die and we face judgment, we'll be saying, this isn't fair. Whereas from God's point of view, every day of our lives, we've sent a message, leave us alone. We don't want you. Don't interfere with us. And that's the analysis we have here. They say unto God, depart from us. And there are certain times when you say this especially loudly. Maybe when conscience troubles you over something you've said, something you've done, and you shrug it off, and thoughts perhaps of God may come, and your need of forgiveness, leave me alone, and you sweep it aside. That's how it can happen. Therefore they say unto God, depart from us. Or it may be even now, this evening, What's this preacher saying? That we need God. Leave us alone, is the voice that echoes in our heart. Or it may be circumstances. I saw on the news a year or two ago, somewhere in the world, it was in, a, in the USA somewhere, where there'd been a tremendous uh, landslip and flooding and people had lost their homes, and there was a, a woman saying very bitterly, why should this happen to us? Why should this be allowed to happen to us? It was her way of saying, leave us alone. Is this tragedy to wake us up? 
Is this loss of material possessions and all that we put our hearts on meant to shake us? Leave us alone, she was effectively saying. So that's mankind's message to God. But it goes on. Depart from us, for we desire not the knowledge of thy ways. The word desire there translates the Hebrew word to bend, for bending. We desire not. We are not inclined, is the idea and the sense, the bending word. We have no inclination to know about the ways of God to know about the contents of the Bible, the book of God, to know about the way of salvation, to hear about God's teaching of mankind and his purpose in making us. We have no inclination, no interest at all. It sounds negative and severe, but this is an analysis of the attitude of all of us. We desire not the knowledge of thy ways. Think of what is missed. Not to know the knowledge of God's ways. I remember before I was converted as a young fellow, I didn't understand, I didn't know anything about God, although I'd been taught all these things. They didn't mean anything to me. I had no interest in them. I had no inclination at all to see things from God's point of view or to hear from him or about him. And that's the message that man sends. We desire not, we have no inclination to know, to have the knowledge of thy ways. Knowledge about the soul knowledge about spiritual life, all missed, knowledge about the way of salvation, what Christ has done and how he's made it possible for us to be pardoned and made new, knowledge about conversion, knowledge about walking with Christ and prayer and the way in which he deals with his people, Knowledge about the world and why it's as it is. Knowledge about heaven and the future. I have no inclination to know any of that. Where does that leave me? It leaves me only as a more intelligent animal. No soul, no God, no spiritual life. And yet I have no inclination for the best things the more profound things, the deeper things. Therefore they say unto God, depart from us, for we desire not the knowledge of thy ways. Have you sent a message to God? Are you sending it every day? And you scarcely know it. And God may take you seriously. God may oblige you. And then where are you? No hope of heaven. No life with God. No help on earth. No friend in heaven. 
No kindness from God. But then I come to verse 15, and this is slightly different. What is the Almighty that we should serve him? And what profit should we have if we pray unto him? Now this is, I read this as man's message to himself. Having sent a message to God, leave us alone, we're now speaking to ourselves. How do I justify this act? How do I justify the repudiation of God, the rejection of my maker, the rejection of the purpose of life? Well, I have to say to myself and persuade myself that I've done the right thing. So these are the words I mutter to myself, the message to me. Verse 15, what is the Almighty that we should serve him? What profit should we have if we pray unto him? What difference will he make to me? What difference will he make to my life? We are fine without him. That's the implication. We can manage without him. We can do well. I can be famous. I can be rich. I can have all kinds of pleasures, so-called sinful ones, if I like. I can do anything I want to. I can have total moral liberty, total self-determination. I can do whatever I want. So what profit will I get if I pray to him and subject myself to him? Who is he? The Almighty. It's said almost in derision of God. And we say this to ourselves. Why am I in church? I didn't really want to be here and listen to something like this. It's as if has nothing to do with me. I can manage perfectly well without God. Dear friends, can I say it gently to you? How proud we are to think so. That we can be happy and successful and fulfilled in life all by ourselves. How foolish we are to turn against God and think he, the creator of heaven and earth, has nothing to give us. Don't you see what's happened to us? Materialism has made our minds smaller, has brought our horizons down, has lowered our expectations. Materialism, can I say it politely, it's kind of shriveled the brain so that I no longer have any taste for purpose, meaning, eternity, spiritual, the soul. I have become a holy, materialistic, limited, narrow person. What profit should we have if we pray unto him? What do we miss by not having him? Our creator, our maker, Redemption through Christ, new life, power over our sinful conduct, self-control, sweet natures given to us. 
a new spirit and a new kindness imparted to us. Dear friends, look at this. Job goes on. He talks of man's perilous situation. Verse 16, Lo, their good is not in their hand. The counsel of the wicked is far from me. That's a twofold statement. They don't realize. Look, see. The unbeliever, his good is not in his hand, in his power. It's in God's hands, the whole of his life. I was talking to a man in hospital just not so very long ago. I was having a CT scan checkup for an earlier procedure on something. That's immaterial. And I found myself in a waiting room and there was a man uh, and it turned out he'd uh, just uh, had to resign his company directorship. He was obviously a very prosperous man. He had that sort of cut about him and that air, uh, chief executive officer of his own kind of huge company, wealthy, lived somewhere in the leafy lanes of Surrey in a great big house and prosperous. But he was a half-broken man coming to terms with a very serious cancer condition which increasingly was looking terminal for him. And he was somewhat thin and suffered great rigors from consecutive therapies which for him, in his case, were not working out well. And there was something desolate about him and we talked for a while. I'm sorry to tell you about this, but lo, their good is not in their hand. We go through life as though we had the power to determine fame, fortune, happiness, everything. We're in the hand of God. And this is a short, uncertain, earthly life. The counsel of the wicked is far from me. In modern language, you'd say, Job was saying, I can't understand the uh, way of reasoning, of unbelief. Of course, he does understand it to a considerable extent as he goes on to show. What he means is he can't figure it. Why people should think they're better off without God. When you think of all the wonderful things that you miss, to have the Lord of glory, the creator of heaven and earth, as your heavenly Father, Christ as your Savior, his forgiving love, his nearness to you and his constant attention, his transformation of your life. And you pray to him for others and for your family, and for all kinds of situations. And he helps you mightily, and blesses you, and is with you. Oh, says Job, I can't understand the unbeliever. Why he should be so hostile, and so furious, and so anxious. What has God ever done to him? God is good. He's going to be a judge, yes. 
He's indignant against sin, yes, but he's merciful and forgiving. Why, Christ, who is God, with the Father, even came into the world to suffer and die for us. What love, what condescension, what goodness. I hate him. I don't want him. Leave me alone. Why? What's he done? The unreasonableness of unbelief. The absolute unreasonableness. Yet somehow it gets into us. Friends, the message of Job is see it. See it and turn to the Lord for mercy and forgiveness and kindness in salvation. Verse 17, how oft is the candle of the wicked put out for candle read lamp that's the hebrew the lamp of the wicked the unbeliever what's the lamp of the unbeliever well the vital life life you can see it in the eyes of a living person the body is full of life it's the lamp but then Lamp, all your knowledge, all your opinions, all your views, all your dreams, all your aspirations, all your hopes. It's all the light of the body. That's an illustration. It's going to be put out. It's coming to an end. There's a day of account. Man's perilous condition. We've looked at his message to God, his message to himself, and now his condition. How oft is the candle of the wicked put out? How oft cometh their destruction upon them? God distributeth sorrows in his anger and is entitled to be angry. Why should God be angry with me? We may say, have you paid him no homage? Have you paid him no rent, as it were? Have you given him no thanks? Have you never sought his help and his kindness? Have you never asked his forgiveness? Have you never obeyed his will and his commands? Have you never loved him? Have you never studied him? Have you said, leave me alone? What can you do for me? I've no desire and interest and no need of you. Well, isn't God entitled to be angry? Verse 18, they are as stubble before the wind and as chaff that the storm carrieth away. The end of life is coming and how fragile we are. God layeth up his iniquity and so on. Verse 21, I must come to conclusion. Look at this. For what pleasure hath he, the unbeliever, in his house after him? What pleasure will he have when he's gone and his months are cut off in the midst? And the clear implication of the verse is that the soul goes on. When life ends... The soul goes on. 
but you've got no pleasure now. As I said, you leave behind all dreams, hopes, aspirations, all pleasure also. And Job continues to speak of death and what will happen until he comes to extraordinary uh, terms. Verse 33, the clods of the valley shall be sweet unto him. That's pure irony. When you die, the most pleasurable thing for you, which of course you won't be sensitive to actually, is the mud clods of the valley you're buried in. That's all you've got. You've got no pleasure, no happiness, no hope of heaven. You're going before God in judgment. And the irony is, the clods of the valley shall be sweet unto him. That's the very best thing you've got. How perilous is man's condition, trifling with God, making nothing of him. So I come back to verse 14, and I give just one last exhortation, friends. Therefore they say unto God, depart from us, for we desire not the knowledge of thy ways. Don't say it. Don't send that message to God. Don't let that be the desire expressed by your life to God. The arms of God are ever open to returning sinful unbelievers. The mercy of God still flows towards all who come to him. Until the end of time, maybe it's not so far off, when you see what's going on in the world, we begin to hear of war clouds now, the possibility of world war, the intensely dangerous state the world is getting into. Dear friends, we might not have that long, but until the end of time, the mercy of God flows. Christ has suffered and died on Calvary's cross to save, to bear the punishment of sin on behalf of millions of people right up until the end of time. He's our only hope. Come to him, the saviour of the world. Come as it were on your knees. Ask for his forgiving love. Tell him you've sinned against him. Ask for new life, new understanding. Ask for heavenly citizenship and a future in eternal bliss with him. Ask him to be your guardian and your friend and your helper and your saviour even now. And if the Spirit is at work in your heart and you mean it sincerely, he will not refuse you and you will find him and you will find new life. Don't, don't, don't send the message of verse 14. Depart from us, for we desire not the knowledge of thy ways. Let's pray together.
Oh God, our gracious Heavenly Father, look upon us all. Break our hearts if necessary. Show us our foolishness. Draw us to Christ Jesus. Oh Lord, we pray that thou wilt dispense pardon and life and salvation even this night. Come in thy great kindness and love and bless needy souls. We ask it in the name of our Saviour, for his sake. Amen.